This is the Urban Political, the podcast on urban theory, research, and activism. Thanks for tuning into the Urban Political podcast today. This is Markus Kipp, and I'm joined by Ross Beveridge and Philip Weitzer today. And uh, we briefly frame this episode that brings together four researchers and activists who reflect on urban planning paradigms in places of the so-called Global South. Our guests will reflect on avenues for decolonizing and decentering planning approaches and discuss the role of academic research. Our moderator today is Inji John, a lecturer in international urban politics at the University of Melbourne. And Inji speaks with, in the alphabetical order, Mark Davidson, a professor of urban geography in the Graduate School of Geography at Clark University, Prince Guma, a research fellow and assistant country director at the British Institute in Eastern Africa, Nairobi, and Smuti Jukur, an urbanist based in India, currently the program leader at the Society for the Promotion of Area Resource Center, SPARC, which is an affiliate of the Transnational Slum Dwellers International Network. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Really looking forward to learning from you. Inji, the floor is yours. <laughs> thank you, Marcus. Um, Hi, everyone, and thank you, Prince, for inviting me to be a moderator of this discussion. Um, I myself don't have the ex extensive research experience in Southern cities, um, and I actually had a personal failure doing a research in Nepal when I was a PhD student, which we can talk about later. Um, so I'm really excited to learn from you guys as moderator today. Um, and just to give you a bit of background, as in where I'm coming from um, and how I come up with the questions I'm planning to ask today, Uh, my research interests kind of in this topic, around this topic, um, on uh, what does academic research have to offer uh, for developing an alternative planning approach, an approach that does justice to the urban realities of the South. Um, this, uh, the research interest that I have uh, began when I was having a conversation with a practitioner working for peri-urban settlement communities in Latin America. When I asked her what she thought about UN's work on SDGs, she was a bit hesitant about it becoming the, the unilateral standard that determines what's a good development. Her reason was that the standards don't always reflect the realities experienced and felt by the actual inhabitants and that the citizens, not the morality from on high, should determine what works for them as well as how to fight against the forces that endanger the actualization of their own ideals. And this was one of the reasons why my recent commentary on The City We Want, published in Planning Theory and Practice, I emphasize on the contextual specificities of normative directions in collective action. Drawing from geographer Robert Lake's idea of situated justice, I argued against transcendent values in defense of evolving values that only come alive in actual practices of social actors. Relatedly, Prince present here today in his recent article on provisional urban words argues that, quote, urban planners and practitioners need to open up to urban words whose materializations exceed unidimensional conceptions of modernity and to incorporate the reality of provisional urban words into official city making and planning, recognizing the value of these informal and transient structures in people's lives, unquote. 
So the theme that we try to delve into today, which is how can academic research be of service to envisioning alternative planning agendas that reflect the reality of themselves, entails uh, these three key concerns. The first concerns, uh, the first concern is regard to uh, epistemological contentions between theory and practice. Um, so Mark uh, present here today noted in his recent article going bust in two ways, published in Urban Geography. Um, he argues that on the one hand, there are theoretical explorations that are invested in critiquing exploitative social processes caused by larger political economic systems, such as neoliberalism uh, and capitalism. And on the other hand, there's practitioner space, which is often filled with applying or challenging regulatory confinements of everyday city making. Um, so this is the first issue. The second issue concerns who then decides what's a good or bad uh, development or uh, what's a good or bad policy. And this question um, has been well noted by Prince's work on in incompleteness of, our, of urban infrastructure, where he discusses the contextually postmodern, no, sorry, contextually post-Western heterogeneous modernities and technicities. And finally, if academia is about knowledge production, uh, that could not only help us understand our world a little bit better, but also become useful for our practical engagement with the world, either through redescriptions, critical reflections, or collective inquiries, how do you address the tension between our scholarly pursuits, which is often driven by you know, theories, et cetera, versus having an actual relevance to the life conditions of everyday communities? And what does it take for urban uh, research or academic research to be useful for reimagining or reinventing new practices? So uh, we're gonna talk about three topics and I'm trying to um, cap 20 minutes per topic. Um, I'm going to pose uh, prompt questions to each speakers, uh, but anybody can jump in and uh, ask a follow-up question. I will uh, look at the time and make sure that uh, we do that 20 minutes per topic. So first topic is epistemological contentions. Second topic is how to decide what is good or bad planning or development. The final uh, reflection is uh, linking theory, theory and practice. Um, so going to the epistemological contentions, uh, to you, Mark, um, in your recent work on urban policy failure, going bust in two ways, discusses the epistemological contentions between urban geography's investment in critical social theory versus public policy disciplines primary concern on how to generate desired changes of here and now. How and in what ways are these two epistemologies different? And for non-academic non listeners, could you differentiate epistemology versus ontology? Thank you, Mark. Thanks, Inji, and thanks for everyone being involved in this today. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Um, sure, let me to the last part of your question. Um, yeah. in, as briefly as I can put it, I guess. Uh, epistemology is the, the philosophy of knowledge, so it asks questions like, what is the nature of knowledge? What is the source of knowledge? How do we justify our beliefs? Um, what are the possibilities of knowledge? Um, what types of knowledge are there? So ask questions about knowledge. How do we know mm -hmm. things? Uh, ontology is the philosophy of existence or being. Um, so it essentially asks what is in the world. Uh, you can go right back to the ancient Greeks and see Socrates asking these types of questions. Um, 
for example, you might try and categorize the world up into things which are concrete, like a tree, a material substance, or something which is abstract, like an idea. They all exist in the world, but what is the, what are the differences between them? Mm. Um, so these are philosophical distinctions. Um, and my work on urban policy failure um, came out of an attempt to try and understand the differences in explanation which were emerging principally in the US about urban governance after the Great Recession. And mm-hmm. um, in dealing with the two literatures, one in geography, which was more critically orientated, and the other in public policy, mm-hmm. um, one of the ways I could explain the difference between these two literatures was by thinking about the ways in which they uh, enact different types of reasoning. Um, mm-hmm. And very, in broad strokes, I think what you find is that literature in critical urban studies and geography tends to think about theoretical reasoning, mm-hmm. um, and that is concerned with trying to explain causation, what's causing city governments to act in particular ways. Um, Mm. And the public policy scholars are more interested in questions of of how to act, and that's more concerned with what would be called practical reasoning. Um, Mm. And and I wanted to think about the the distinction between those two knowledges. And one way to think about that is, um, is a distinction between practical and technical knowledge. And so this is a, this is a distinction which, uh, philosopher, the philosopher Michael Oakeshott talks about. Um, so a good example is if you think about buying uh, a cookbook, um, mm-hmm. say Anthony Bourdain's cookbook, right? You buy the book mm-hmm. and it involves, it's got a set of instructions into how to make a dish um, of, of whatever type. And the probably the expectation you have is but in by buying the book, it doesn't make you the... The, a, a greater chef as Anthony Bourdain was um, um, because it gives you technical knowledge. It tells you what mm-hmm. to do, but in order to make the dish in the same way, there's a different type of knowledge, um, mm-hmm. which is, which you can't, I mean, Oakshot claims you can't write it down. It's practical knowledge. It's tacit, it's practiced. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what, going back to urban studies, I think what, public policy scholars try and do is to tap in much more to that idea of the practical knowledge at play, mm-hmm. whereas critical geographical and urban scholars have, have been more concerned with the technical. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that creates a, a, a di- just different modes of explanation uh, mm-hmm. and in, in fact, different objects of inquiry. Um, mm-hmm. So when you, when, there are debates about bringing these thing, two things together. And the point of that paper is essentially to argue mm. what you are trying to bring together or to keep my food analogy going are, are apples and oranges. Mm. They may not be compatible. They may just simply be mm. different types of knowledge. Mm. Um, and, and so sim- there may be barriers in, in the ways in which different people who are looking at the same thing construct yeah. different forms of knowledge. Just a quick question uh, on, uh, so what are the pros and cons of each, each epistemology? Um, you, you know, that's a, different, that's a difficult question to answer because there's, there's worth in both. Um, 
and it, it's, it kind of depends on what you want to know um, mm -hmm. and the object of inquiry that you are looking at and mm -hmm. the quality of the scholarship involved in each. So um, you, can, you need both. Um, what, uh, what public policy scholars are trying to do, it, they're trying to help people who are actually practicing uh, mm -hmm. and there's an orientation towards that um, type of community and the priorities of that. And critical scholars attending to talk to other critical scholars. Um, yeah. And uh, so it's hard to say pros and cons. They're just doing different things. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and the utility of each of those were, I think, varies over time. I think I'm a bit of a relativist with that. Uh, so... Um, mm. it, it's that the, they're discrete forms of knowing, which mm. in what realm that is applicable. Um, mm. we will maybe come on to talk to a little bit later, but um, mm. yeah, I, I, I tend to kind of hesitate to say they <laughs> one is better than the other, they're just trying to do different things, they're different tools, right? Right, right, that's true. Um but Prince, I think your your um, comparison uh, with uh, different epistemologies are a little bit different, but you know, in a similar vein, in the sense that the worldview differences that you highlight uh, in your work on incompleteness of urban structure, uh, urban infrastructure, um, because you talk about um, kind of the Western modernity, kind of. The, there is an end goal uh, that you have to achieve. And then you emphasize uh, the fact that we have to go beyond the universalizing solutions to processes of infrastructure, uh, universe, infrastructure heterogeneity. Uh, perhaps to see, it is perhaps better to see infrastructures as emergent, shifting, and thus incomplete. Um, so I think you kind of really underscore uh, the existence of heterogeneity of different modernities and technologies that are currently underrepresented in Western-driven academic discourse. Um, and so uh, what do you think this implies for researchers who are interested in exploring Southern cities, but not necessarily from uh, Southern cities? Um, and how do we go beyond extracting data out of South to populate the same theoretical framework towards research practices that can have generative value in lively, livelihood concerns in the South? Yes, uh, thank you very much, Henry, for um, really uh, setting this up. Uh, and I'm, looking, I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Um, yeah, so I mean, for me, uh, the uh, contribution that I was trying to make uh, in this paper, first and foremost, uh, I think for me it was really about um, me trying to draw uh, from uh, my own observations of work in policy uh, and research circles, uh, especially work that tends to depict urban infrastructure heterogeneity uh, as always being, you know, synonymous with failure or uh, brokenness, um, and so. I wanted to critique uh, this, you know, often subtle expectations of infrastructures. You know, the idea that infrastructure should always evolve in a linear trajectory uh, mm -hmm. from less complete to more complete arrangements. Uh, and therefore I refer to tendencies, um, to these kinds of tendencies as um, 
a kind of completist laws and inclinations uh, that ought to be opposed. Um, and, and it is upon this uh, that I make uh, the case for the notion of the, of the incompleteness that you just mentioned. Uh, mm -hmm. And um, as, you know, so I, you know, draw on this concept as a constitutive feature of infrastructures in transition, uh, especially those uh, that while diverging from the so-called norms and ideals cannot be described as failed, uh, but as something else completely. Um, and so, uh, you know, the points that um, Mark was trying to draw, uh, you know, upon, uh, you know, the ideas of tacit uh, and practiced and practical knowledge and, you know, the technical knowledge, the different forms of knowledge becomes really important. And mm. especially it becomes important for us in trying to understand uh, the different uh, kinds of modernities. Uh, mm. And so within the, bro within the broader and uh, global policy world uh, mm. or policy making processes, um, it also becomes the case uh, that there is, you know, this wider critique. So the wider critique that I just mentioned of tends to, um, seems to really extend, you know, within these kinds of circles uh, themselves. Mm. Um, and so, there is a general urge um, and desire to conceptualize infrastructures or infrastructure projects through uh, a kind of globally sanctioned trademarks of what a modern infrastructure or modern infrastructure project should be or should look like. Mm -hmm. um, and so here again, the infrastructures that, that diverge uh, from um, the preferred ideal of modernity uh, mm -hmm. often tend to be disparaged, uh, but also, um, you know, uh, generally, uh, you know, uh, identified as it being deficient, uh, defective, unsophisticated, mm -hmm. less developed, and so on. Uh, mm -hmm. So I really want to uh, completely agree with you uh, regarding what, you know, the core argument here is, uh, which mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, respecting the heterogeneity of different modernities and technologies, particularly those uh, that are uh, that are currently underrepresented uh, within mm -hmm. the so the so-called global south, uh, mm -hmm. and so I think that we need to completely uh, demystify uh, this heterogeneity beyond proposals that disparage uh, situated processes of development that diverge mm -hmm. from the norms and ideals of um, you know what you refer to as the Western. Um, modernity. Uh, mm -hmm. And so just to answer your, your, your other part of the question regarding, um, you know, researchers interested in exploring African cities, uh, mm -hmm. but are not from Africa. I think this, this also extends to, you know, African researchers as well, who might be interested in, a diff, you know, different kinds of contests and so on. Um, so for me, this really calls uh, partly for aligning with a kind of, you know, postmodern uh, enterprise. Um, so rather than, uh, re, you know, reproaching unfamiliar and strange infrastructures uh, mm -hmm. and development processes as attempts uh, to, you know, uh, you know, in the urge to really disentangle them, I think that it, it, it is important to better understand them and to see them for what they really are. Mm -hmm. uh, and this means trying to see the value in their own abilities to transform urban lives, to transform urban infrastructures and so on. Thus, um, I think uh, that we cannot uh, just, you know, be normative about what, what's happening in these cities, in this case, African cities, uh, but we need to uh, 
be trying really to go beyond the language of, uh, you know, the normative. Um, and so we need to go beyond essentialist and judgmental overtones. Uh, and I think for me, um, uh, as, you know, an emerging scholar and so on, I think for me, this really is about departing from a kind of dominant Euro-American traditions towards engaging a more nuanced uh, discourse, uh, especially one that brings the locals uh, into a critical, innovative and situated uh, engagement. Mm, mm, mm. Awesome. So more on the process and observation than the end goal. Um, yes. Uh, Smriti, related to this matter, um, in your conversation with me before, we talked about the aesthetics of city making and uh, you know how some development agencies unilateral understanding of what's beautiful or aesthetic can be sometimes patronizing and sometimes not very useful. So could you give us some of the examples of um, uh, these uh, dynamics of uh, who decides aesthetics, et cetera, and how that relates to your work in practice at the moment? Yeah, thanks, Inji. This is a topic very close to my heart. Um, this is a question, actually, that duty bearers need to ask themselves. Um, the, the reality of our cities today is that more than 50% of its people live in informality. They build cities from below. Now, design and aesthetics in placemaking has often been quite romanticized in theory. Um, however, in practice, this is seldom the case when in case of pro-poor designs. Um, let's pick up, for instance, um, housing designs, uh, because that's done in mass numbers across the globe. Now, pro-poor housing solutions are patronizing in many ways, because when housing um, is built for the poor, or when the poor are facilitated with housing, they're often seen by decision makers as beneficiaries of a project, and they're very rarely seen as partners of city making. Mm -hmm. So in, in many cases, we would observe that design solutions are like cookie cutters, you know, they rarely speak to the context. All the mm -hmm. fundamentals of space, light, ventilation are completely compromised. So it's, it's mostly like a tick box exercise, you know, so it, it's, mm -hmm. it's to say that, uh, it's, it's to ask rather that don't poor have notions of aesthetics and aren't they rightful city makers? Mm -hmm. So in our practice, we have seen that such myopic visions have been challenged and that design of the commons is the oldest practice. And there is a lot of architecture without architects that have built cities in generations. Mm -hmm. um, they've been built over time with local resources that are affordable and solutions that have seen scale. Um, hence the key in observing how aesthetics are defined and perceived lies in the way people build, uh, you know, their uh, people build and come up with local solutions. Fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so related to uh, this kind of you know, uh, which epistemology is better or worse, or, or, or maybe it's not in the question of which one is better, um, but I kind of, uh, the kind of discrimination sometimes is needed uh, to uh, practice. So um, the second topic uh, is, uh, how do we decide, how do we decide or who decides what is uh, good or bad planning or good or bad development? Um, and just to, before jumping into discussion, I'm just curious, just like in one or two sentences, 
Um, how would you define the word development uh, going from Mark, uh, Prince and Smriti? Mark, how would you define development, the word development? Uh, I, for me, I think development is probably best thought of as, as an as a act of problem solving. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and I think that, that would align, I think, with the ways in which I think about some of the moral and normative dimensions that uh, that Prince and Smriti have just talked about. So I, I would I would plump for the idea of problem solving. Problem solving, cool. Uh, Prince, how about you? Yeah, no, I mean I couldn't really agree more. Uh, but uh, so for me, what I could possibly add is that beyond that. Uh, it should be a kind of development that is really, you know, or in this case, a kind of problem solving um, mm. that, you know, um, considers, you know, the situated realities, but is also not as such uh, that it follows a linear trajectory. Um, mm. Yeah, I think that's really what I could add onto what Max just uh, mentioned. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How about you, Smriti? Yeah, I think uh, development is a response to expand on people's choices. Mm. That is how I could best think of uh, development, because anything that is in the name of development is to actually expand on what people want, what choices that they bring out. Mm, 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 mm. Awesome. We're going to talk about that uh, soon. Um, but to you, Mark, just going back to you, uh, I, I was really fascinated by your article, uh, the recent article in City, published in City on David Hume, and you kind of talk about uh, morality and where we should find the origins of deciding what's good or bad. Um, and as a bit of spoiler, uh, you conclude that stressing the importance of understanding cultural and social conventions that could help mediate tension between reason and passion. Uh, what are the key insights uh, from reading Hume, tracing the genealogy of good and bad, and what would that imply for an engaged urban geography research going forward? Yeah, so I, I guess I'm one of the few people who's engaged with Hume in recent years, and at least in geography, and I, it, it, I think Hume is incredibly underappreciated across the social sciences. Um, and some of the things that Hume says really does align with some of the things we've just talked about. So uh, Hume is, is a kind of skeptic of, um, of the early Enlightenment and particularly ideas around which we, could, we might put in the terms that, that Prince talks about, kind of linear modernities, um, which suggests another way of putting that is to say that we are becoming more and more reasonable over time and that everyone, everyone should get on board the reasonable train. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and Hume is deeply skeptical of that. Um, and one of the ways in which Hume does that is to say that the ways in which, the, or at least question that, the ways in which enlightenment thought has tended to think about reason is that it's something we have it's something we should become more and more aligned with and people like rousseau and to some extent kant are uh a great exemplars of that uh, and hume looks at himself principally and says actually reason is always um 
playing second fiddle to the passions. And the, the things that actually motivate us mm. are passionate attachments. So we kind of love things, we envy things, we get angry about things. Mm-hmm. These are these are things that motivate us. Um, it's really hard to motivate someone through a reasoned argument. Uh, mm-hmm. Usually, we use rhetoric with regards to reason to appeal to passionate attachments. Um, so, I mean, that's a kind of philosophical insight which is central to Hume's work, and the ways in which I think that's important for critical urban study and geography. Mm-hmm. Um, in the paper that you mentioned is is really based around the idea that much of critical urban scholarship has been uh, orientated towards a critique of reason. Um, another way of saying another way of saying that is a lot of urban scholarship has been concerned with what we call neoliberalism, mm-hmm. um, and there is much that can be said about that concept. But um, essentially, that is. Uh, a diverse array of critical scholarship which tries to expose the irrationalities of mm. an approach to city making world making more generally which is based on reasoned argument so mm-hmm. neoliberalism is uh, is a great example of enlightenment thinking that everyone should become more aligned with this kind of form of reasoning that institutions should look like this um, mm. and the of course what the moment we're living in and what the paper is responding to is a moment of populism mm-hmm. and populism populism isn't based in reason in the same ways in which neoliberalism is as a doctrine mm-hmm. um it's quite apparent to anyone i think to 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 look at the promises that populists make mm-hmm. which is quite clear they can't keep those promises they are deep inconsistencies within those um and that doesn't matter because they're really appealing to desires to passions um Mm. and i think that's a different object of analysis so as our cities look more and more populist as they become inheritors of national populist politics and as Mm. mayoral candidates embrace the populist politics right uh, that's a different that's a different thing to critique and Mm. um and hume gives us great insight into that and his his responses essentially don't get fooled by mm-hmm. trying to come up with a more reasoned argument to, to, to think this is playing out in reason, that you have to think about cultivating the passions that mm-hmm. motivate us in more, essentially more civilized ways. Um, and I think I end the paper with an example from Orwell, mm-hmm. which came to mind when I was writing the paper that Orwell mm-hmm. uh, writing, I think in, I think it's, it's after World War II. It's I think it's forty-eight. He writes about nationalism, mm-hmm. um, and Orwell is is kind of critical of the left at the time, who is very much kind of uh, internationalist uh, and opposed to the nation. And actually, Orwell's point is people are deeply attached to the to to the idea of a nation, mm-hmm. and his proposal is quite human in the sense that he thinks his what he calls patriotism, which is I think he's, I'm I'm going to butcher the quote here, but he says that to be a patriot is to believe your country is better than the rest, it is the best country, but no better than any other. It's to have Mm. pride, but not some kind of hierarchical pride. Um, Mm. And that's a very human answer to like, you have to recognize that populist, populist cities are appealing to things which are the things that motivate people. Mm. Um, 
and and Hume doesn't think, and he's in great opposition to hear someone like Rousseau, who believes uh, Rousseau kind of, to quote Rousseau, I think people have to be forced to be free. They have to be forced to be reasonable. Um, and, he, and Hume fundamentally disagrees with that. So what, I, what I'm trying to think about in that paper when we come to going back to your question about what is good and bad mm. is that that probably doesn't play out in terms of the types of kind of intellectual contest about reason and theoretical reason that mm. we have got used to uh, practicing, that we've mm. got used to appealing to passionate scholarship, right? We, so you can say, look at this neoliberalism in the city is terrible. It, there's no trickle-down economics. The poor are becoming more impoverished. And here's an example. Here's a narrative. Here's a story. Mm-hmm. That's a, a, a passionate appeal to uh, an unreasonable set of ideas. But populism switches that. And, and so I think we need to think pretty deeply about how we engage mm-hmm. with um, critique in a world which is moving away from um, at least the veneer, at least the justification of certain things based on the idea that it is more reasonable. Mm, 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 mm. Fascinating. Uh, related to this, Prince, I think uh, your work kind of criticizes um, uh, on this mainstream modernity. Um, but uh, what I find it also interesting is that um, there the relational constitution between the mainstream and heterodox. So the mainstream only exists insofar as heterodox exists and heterodox exists only insofar there, there is a mainstream, which we would think that that's the Western modernity. Um, uh, as you say uh, that the contingency of infrastructure um, are assemblages of social, political, economic and technical negotiations, both trivial, significant, mundane and strange. Um, so what does this relational constitution between mainstream and heterodox mean for official policy actors as well as the people who work in the peripheries of urban governance? Yes, uh, thank you, Henry. Um, I think uh, this idea of, um, you know, who decides a good and bad uh, planning, uh, you know, at the heart of it, of course, is, you know, um, for whom is urban planning, you know, being made uh, and to what end, um, you know, so the motives and, you know, obviously so many other irrationalities um, involved in how, you know, some of these processes tend to be shaped. Uh, but I think for me, what's this, what this really is about, you know, the uh, concept of who decides good or bad planning, I think for me, it's really about, um, you know, attention to different modes of ordering uh, because, um I mean, uh, there are always going to be different angles of, you know, what bad or good planning is uh, and for whom that, you know, is good or bad. Uh, But I think appreciation to different modes of ordering becomes really important. Uh, Mm -hmm. So uh, the dynamic between the mainstream and heterodox um, and the relational constitution uh, of the two here becomes really important. Uh, because for me, really, I think that a lot of what is happening in the global south, um, and I think everywhere else for that matter, is not a process that necessarily manifests through a contrast, you know, of, you know, good or bad, 
uh, failure or success and so on. Uh, But it's rather, um, I think these realities often tend to be embedded um, and also located in a mode of practice uh, that is always shaped through uh, mostly, in this case, you know, if you're talking about cities, uh, through mostly uh, resident-initiated processes uh, that sometimes tend to even transcend, uh, you know, the state. So uh, mm-hmm. some of these, um, you know, uh, developments might, you know, sometimes appear to be irrational uh, for some actors, but in actual sense, they're really not, uh, they, they, they really not are irrational and they are shaped by, you know, different kinds of, um, uh, you know, urbanized or livelihoods and so on. Yeah. Uh, so um, how people interact uh, with infrastructures, uh, technologies, development projects and so on uh, is often going to be determined uh, by, uh, you know, the contingency, you know, that you just mentioned. Uh, mm-hmm. And this is in addition to, you know, political uh, and, you know, economic conditions, um, you know, social aspects uh, and other, you know, uh, technological articulations and so on. And this, you know, can always be trivial or significant. They can be mundane or strange. Uh, but either way, um, an infrastructure project or uh, technology and so on, uh, they're always going to be shaped uh, or, you know, their shaping is always going to be dependent upon some of these factors. Hence the, fa- the, the, the uh, reason why uh, projects tend to be always uh, contingent. Um, and in the face of this, yes, no, I was just wondering, what do you think of this reason and passion, this, this tension between reason and passion? How, do, how does that play out in your uh, case uh, in uh, contingent infrastructures? Yes, I mean, uh, so reason and passion, I think it really plays out in more in different kinds of calculations that drive, you know, different actors to, you know, how they react to an infrastructure project that just Mm -hmm. came into their neighborhood, for instance. You know, so the different kinds of calculations and speculations that inform different actors' uh, response to something that just came into their lives. It could be a technology or an infrastructure and so on. Uh, or it could even be, um, you know, a response to a government policy and so on. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think for me, it's really more about these kinds of, you know, very minute, um, you know, calculations and um, uh, and speculations that often come into play to inform people's, uh, you know, um, actions uh, regarding how they um, interact with uh, something that just came into their lives. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, and and re- uh, thank you. Um, and relatedly, Smriti, uh, one of my favorite uh, parts of your TED talk, uh, you mentioned that, uh, quote, poverty changes affordability, but not aspirations, unquote. Uh, you therefore conclude that how to broaden their choices should be at the heart of our work, or, you know, researchers or practitioners work rather than us choosing what's right for the poor. Uh, what kind of knowledge or knowledge making processes do you think uh, could help everyday professionals in concocting such menus for everyday communities to choose from? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, that that also comes in response with the reflection of the topic itself of what who decides what's good or bad planning. In, mm. in neoliberal cities, power, positionality, politics and people decide most of it. People are often left behind. Um, There's a whole argument about how power appropriates what is good and bad and what works and what doesn't work. So that same thing reflects in terms of aspirations. 
but the challenge is that um, you know poor people like uh, what they see around just like anybody else. They have very similar aspirations, but it's often misunderstood when professionals look down upon what people need and then go around building um, you know, something that's completely low cost solutions, uh, coming up with ideas that they think works for people, but it's probably not what they want. Mm. So, I mean, unarguably, um, affordability is definitely a constraint in a lot of communities. But what that means is that there are solutions in local knowledge, which is very advanced, and it's, it's much more adaptable and sustainable. Um, it has stood the test of time and that millions of people use it is the evidence to, to acknowledge that it has worked. Mm -hmm. uh, the role of professionals here is then to expand on that local knowledge and bring technical advancements to improve on what exists instead of doing the other way around. Um, right. There is a opportunity for co-production. Now, this is a term that's quite often used in research, but very rarely understood in practice. Um, so simply, let's say, for instance, you know, we talk about standards all the time. Um, a lot of people in reality use second-handed material to build their houses or build their places. Uh, these materials or this method of construction is probably not listed in the codes of construction practices. Mm -hmm. But well, 40% of large cities are being built by people are being built like that. So accepting that, you know, as professionals, that that's the reality uh, and that that kind of reality is challenging is the first step. And, and how to broaden those solutions that may be acceptable in everyday practice is actually the gap that professionals need to bridge. Because whether we like it or not, whether we accept it or not, whether our standards accept it or not, people are going to build it anyway. Right. So, so, so it's, yeah, so it's time that aspirations also come to reality um, and, and that it's, it's affordability that's the problem. It's, it's not, uh, you know, aspirations that is a problem. Mm -mm 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 -mm. Awesome. Inji, if I can just if I could just jump yes. in there, I think that's a it's a really good example of when you with reference to good or bad and how you think about those categories, and then when you impose this distinction between practical and technical knowledge on it, then mm -hmm. uh, we, we there is a tendency to preference the technical. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely, at the cost of the practical, and and that's. That's something quite inherent within the kind of intellectual position, the the, the preference of of the technical, the, the the bookshelf, that that type of knowledge, which has it, of course, has its place, um, but it gets elevated, uh, and we assume it, it's it's a very powerful form of knowledge, and we can assume that it, it overrides the practical, and and that's it's a certain it's a certain perspective, and it's sometimes also human that the ways in which um, different communities have managed to think about condition and develop conventions to uh, to solve social problems can be overridden completely by a, a certain elevation of technical knowledge. Um, yeah. And we, we see that in, in, that's not limited to urban planning, which that's a, a societal condition. Um, and, and moving away from that is difficult because it's not an either or, right? You need to bring them into dialogue with one another, but it means 
as Muti says, a kind of a, a fairly radical shift in the ways that we've tended to bring expertise into certain problem-solving exercises. Um, and unless we have these kind of distinctions, it's very hard for us to take what I think is a quite modest position in the type of knowledge we have and produce um, mm -hmm. into bridging this kind of connections we're talking about today. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, Prince, would you have any uh, comment on that? On no, this kind no, of I think, yeah, yeah, no, I, I mean, I completely agree uh, with, uh, yeah, Mark. Yeah, Angie, just to just just to conclude on that note and what Mark said is that you know mm -hmm. technical knowledge has been very traditional and and very rarely it's ever been questioned or challenged. Mm -hmm. And I think I think everybody is just uh, you know following some of those things in a very long time, mm -hmm. and that practice has not necessarily challenged these um, you know technical advancements. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's—I mean, there's a real sociology to that, right? So, we yeah, yeah. technical knowledge requires something like the university or something like that to emerge and develop, and that's where we, on a sociological basis, that's where we've tended to put expertise or people who know stuff, mm -hmm. um, and that's not where all knowledge resides. But yeah. it's been socially elevated, and and unfortunately, I think many of us tend to buy buy that completely, and we shouldn't. Uh, and, and when we, I mean, one of the dominant impressions I have when I go out and do work in cities, do research is how little I know and how little I have to contribute usually, um, despite a stock of technical knowledge. And I think in, um, that's, that's a hazard of the occupation, but it's a sociological hazard too. So we're going to elevate it to a position of expertise, but we, that doesn't mean an expertise in everything. Uh, even the things that we're an expert in. And so, that, yeah, dealing with the sociology of that is a particularly challenging part of, of uh, bridging the, the gap between uh, theory and practice. Yeah, um, this really uh, links smoothly to the, the final topic that I wanted to ask you. Uh, uh, and uh, relatedly, Mark, um, I'd like to know your experience from... Um, you know, engaging more with the European radical thinkers such as Rangsier and now uh, more with American pragmatism such as Rorty and what that implied to your research work in practice. Um, and also, uh, what do you think of the tension between scholarly versus engaged um, and Archimedean globe view versus situated? Right, so there's a lot there. I mean, um, I certainly, I think, I would describe my theoretical engagements as being rather eclectic. And that, as you say, has involved kind of continental European radical traditions and, and American pragmatists like Rorty and, uh, and, and many others besides. I, one of the things I think I've learned from, from that work, um, well, I guess two impressions. What, the first one immediately, there's something that Rorty says, um, about philosophy and theory generally, um, mm. which I can't quite shake. And it's, uh, he says, most of the things that we discuss in philosophy and theory have actually no practical relevance outside of the seminar room. Um, and mm. they've, that's not to dismiss them, they're important. But when it comes to pragmatism, it comes to practice, they're not really relevant. And I think we tend to intellectualize things 
and think there are intellectual solutions to things which there there aren't. And so mm-hmm. um, it, it implies a certain limit to things. And, and that's, I think, a very difficult thing to negotiate because in a seminar room, you're talking about explaining all the world around us and coming up with these big theoretical explanations. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't want to dismiss those. Those are important, but there are real mm-hmm. limits. And I, and, and I think Rorty is fairly brave to, to suggest something like that. And, and so I appreciate mm-hmm. that for sure. Um, and I guess the other thing that I learned by working across traditions is the the partiality of any any um, perspective, and in some sense, that's Hume's skepticism of the of Enlightenment thinking, right? The kind of linearity of it, um, and the importance of reading the contrary opinion, right? As soon as you as soon as you start to agree with something, you should run away to the hills and read everything that disagrees with that uh, that <laughs> opinion. And we are um, I forget who said it, but we are dogma prone from the womb. So um, I, I, reading across those are things that, that on a theoretical basis that, that relate to me. And on, a, on a, the latter part of your question around theory and practice, um, I guess one of the things that I've learned reading across relates back to where we started in terms of epistemology. Mm-hmm. And... Um, as, ur- as an urbanist, we're dealing with an incredibly complicated thing, the city. Mm-hmm. And um, as, a, as, as a kind of epistemological inquiry, there are different aspects to the city which enable us to produce different types of knowledge. And mm-hmm. um, Karl Popper has a really interesting notion here that in terms of thinking about social science and what we can know, um, and he divides the world up into kind of what he calls three worlds or three ontologies. And, and there are aspects of the social world which fall into his third category, uh, third uh, world of ontology. And, um, but those are kind of regularized things, uh, things that, that, you, that you could produce. I mean, he doesn't. He doesn't suggest it's a purely scientific explanation, but you can pr- you can produce something like predictable theories. Um, but those are mainly kind of institutional things. Um, so the cities are, if you like, a set of, reg- of regulated regularities, right? There are things that we kind of institutionalize, um, but there are also many other things in a city which you which you can't put into that group. Um, and so when you think about urban scholarship, I think one of the things I've learned reading across different theorists and being engaged with epistemology is that you should really always be asking, what kind of knowledge can I produce? What kind of theories can I produce um, uh, about the thing that I'm looking at? Um, and um, Popper's suggestion is that we should always be developing he calls the kind of boldest conjectures the boldest hypothesis we can and that is if you like grand theories of um because they they may be out there we you may be able to say that in the world of kind of institutionalized urban development there are certain regularities that we can theorize about um and i think we do a lot of that right there is theory is is elevated pretty high in terms of what we value in academic knowledge. 
the the part of it that we tend to miss, I think, is the other part of Popper's formulation, which is refutations. We don't test we don't test our theories very much. Um, right. the, much of them would reside in kind of in in the kind of pseudo scientific. Yeah. Um, that they are more abstract explanations, and I think that's when you run into the gap to practice because um, I, I think it's it's a, probably a pretty regular occurrence for a junior scholar to go out imbued with a theoretical explanation and then find themselves in the world of practice, and people will just look at you and think, "What are you talking about? This is this is just so abstract." Yeah. And it's not clear to me that the things you are saying are causing us to do what we're doing are actually there at all. Mm. Um, and, I, and I think one of the ways you can get around that is to think about, well, the theory that I've produced, how can I validate it uh, in, in one way or another? That's mm. not to say that all urban theory should be scientific in that sense. But I think mm. when you're talking about practice, I, I think there is a, a much more greater emphasis on having uh, really strong, verified explanation that can then be articulated to people in practice. Um, right, right. So, so I mean, so going back to like the, I guess my my summary answer there is, I, I think the link between theory and practice, it depends on what you're looking at, and it depends on the type of theory you're trying to produce. Um, it, it it may be something that we can't all strive for this connection, and it may be like different projects give us a different um, opportunity to do so. Um, mm. And and, that, and that, that's what I like about Rorty. That's what I, the the idea that a lot of things we're discussing in terms of theory may be really important in our own field, but right. that's where they should stay, and that's fine. Um, mm. But I think we tend to we it tends to be hard to resist. The temptation because of the incentives of the occupation in many ways to mm. to stretch a little bit beyond that realm um and so i i guess i've between working across these things because i i probably become a bit more modest in my own work because of them awesome um prince do you have any comment on that and also um related to that your uh, role, uh, kind of the brokerage role between external scholars uh, coming from different backgrounds and you uh, as a person actually living in, uh, in the South. Um, uh, so you probably run into a lot of Western scholars or other scholars really uh, filled with uh, certain theoretical angers uh, that are quite different uh, from the Southern realities. And I'd, I'd love to know what your experience is on that. Yes, thank you, Indri. Um, yeah, first, I, I just wanted to um, sort of like provoke uh, Mark to, um, you know, think about, you know, the, you know, before we actually begin to think about theory and practice, uh, I think we need to think about whether we actually have the right theories. Um, and if we do not, you know, how do we think, you know, think about theory and practice? Um, because I think there is really an assumption that there are actually theories uh, that, um, you know, one would think uh, reflect uh, the realities on the ground, but sometimes some theories tend not to actually, uh, you know, play this role. Um, so, um, yeah, I just wanted to ask this question, if we actually have uh, theories and, um, you know, um, 
or if this is something that needs to be addressed first before we could be able to speak about you know theory and practice. Um, but yeah, regarding your question, uh, mm -hmm. so um, for me, really, uh, it uh, I think it has been an experience of um, you know and learning as much as learning. Uh, mm -hmm. And so uh, in my work, um, you know, there are times, you know, uh, even within, um, you know, like in Nairobi or in Kampala, the, the cities uh, that I have recited a bit, you know, quite more. Uh, there are times I feel, you know, like I'm an external scholar in one way or another. Mm -hmm. So I think this uh, question really, um, you know, has, um, you know, it has implications for any scholars, regardless of, if, of you know, whether they are external scholars mm -hmm. or not. Uh, right. And so it's always going to be a process of, uh, you know, unlearning as much as it is a process of learning. Uh, mm -hmm. And in my methods, uh, I've, had to ha uh, I've had to follow uh, networks, uh, both mm -hmm. uh, tangible and intangible. Um, mm -hmm. I've tried to be, um, or in fact, I have, I've had to learn uh, how to be open, you know, to different kinds of articulations. Uh, and mm -hmm. so that means different modes of practice, uh, modes of being in the world. Uh, I think that it becomes really important to be open to these kinds of, you know, other realities. Uh, but most importantly, I, I've come to, uh, you know, gain a better grasp uh, of the inherent um, incompleteness of knowledge itself. Uh, mm -hmm. And, at the same time, appreciate and be open to the plurality uh, of knowledge, uh, and that this is about understanding uh, that things can coexist. Uh, so, um, just to go back to your question um, regarding um, uh, that's regarding the um, uh, the current direction of a global scholarship. Mm -hmm. So how I say it really, I don't think there is a single direction to global scholarship. I think there are, uh, you know, different uh, directions and, you know, of course, various scholars growing from different perspectives. Uh, and mm -hmm. so then it becomes really important for us to understand uh, that things can always coexist, including knowledge. Um, so I do not really uh, believe in the idea of a single direction uh, of uh, global scholarship. Even within urban studies, I think that there are many directions. Um, all, uh, in all of this, however, I believe uh, that there is uh, so much uh, that global scholarship can offer to research and policy practices uh, of grounded realities, uh, you know, such as those that I'm experiencing in Eastern Africa. So for instance, scholarship, I think, uh, or I believe uh, could perhaps uh, be, um, you know, more open to different forms of mobilization and sociability and modes of interdependence. Uh, and it could also perhaps try to offer more uh, better exp explication of uh, the molecular details of everyday lives. Uh, because for me, I believe that this is where the innovation lies. And I think that essentially it becomes really important for us as scholars to uh, perhaps in our work be more propositional in how we explicate you know, these uh, aspects of everyday lives and, you know, different interactions and interfaces. Um, and so we need to be open to other forms of articulation, uh, wherever these might be. 
but at a more grand scale, I think that we need to think of, uh, you know, possibilities of, um, you know, decolonizing, uh, you know, pedagogies or, you know, at least being more open to more diverse uh, pedagogies. Um, and of course, you know, this really draws into um, what Mark already mentioned about, you know, the populist movements uh, and, you know, the points by uh, Smoti. Uh, you know, more voice to the people becomes really important rather than, you know, try, you know, going beyond these regimes that tend to silence different sections of societies. Mm. Um, it becomes important for us to, um, you know, draw ourselves more towards uh, pluriversal approaches, of, mm -hmm. uh, particularly those within the margins. And, um, you know, think of planning as something that can be transformative. Uh, mm. take place and context into consideration. Uh, but finally, you know, um, you know, be more attentive to articulations that exceed uh, the language of uh, the normative. Um, thank you, Prince. Uh, just, just a quick question to you, Mark, on um, Prince provocation on what decides kind of what uh, kind of, if it's, if you are just talking about in terms of theories, um, good or bad theories, uh, does it happen only in that theoretical circle or could it be tested um, as an experiment uh, on the ground? Yeah, it's, it's, it's provoking. I, I, uh, I think there are, I mean, we could probably talk about this for days on end, but um, <laughs> I, I think Prince said, do we have the right theories? And I think I, something that I'm resistant to that framing. I, I think the search for the right theory is essentially a theological position. Mm -hmm. um, and I, and I, I, that's not to say, I think actually a lot of scholarship has a, a theoretical that theological orientation. I, mm -hmm. I think we can talk about better theories, better explanations without mm -hmm. ever aiming or expecting that we'll arrive at the right one. And I think there are lots of reasons why we might think that. Um, and, I, but, and I do think there are better explanations and theories out there. I think some things are more settled than others. So um, I, it, I don't think, I think we have a, a vast inheritance of theoretical developments, scientific developments, which um, are, useful and remain useful. Um, and I don't think we're involved in a process of trying to figure out the right way to understand things. I think the, it's much more, I'm much more inclined to take the kind of um, non-essentializing scientific approach that we should continue to be looking for a better way of doing things, whether that's theory in a kind of theoretical reason sense or it's practice in a practical reason sense. Mm -hmm. and, and how we decide on what is better is it, it aligns more with a human approach that well we need to figure out if this is a more civilized and productive way of doing things than it used to be mm. not necessarily the right one because I, again i think searching for such essentials theoretically in any sense um it appeals to the worst of our theoretical tendencies <laughs> Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, it uh, really resonates with the pragmatism uh, focus on the, the reframing or uh, kind of offering a new perspective. 
um, could be also good theory. So it doesn't have to be maybe very, I mean, it's practical, it's useful and practical in some sense um, as a way of offering a new fresh perspective or something. Yeah, I'm, I, I think there are limits to the pragmatist approach. I think mm. sometimes it, the better isn't practical. I think um, I, I'm, I, one of the things I learned from engaging with someone like Ranciere is the centrality of uh, a notion of equality. Um, mm. That's not a claim that every, everyone is equal in any form or another, but in terms of like their political um, uh, status that that should be that should be our approach. So uh, I'm a Democrat above everything else in that sense. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think that is often a practical. <laughs> um, I think that's right. often a very difficult thing to work through. So um, I, I think there are real limits to the pragmatist approach, but I think there is also a great deal of merit. And, it, and um, perhaps it, it is ultimately a, a pragmatic approach to say, well we need to figure out which is the best way to look at this particular problem we are dealing with. Mm -hmm. um, and that may not be necessarily pragmatic. It may be that there are some moral positions that you just have to hold and live with. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but again, that, that's, not, that's to be non-essential about those moral positions you're holding. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, awesome, thank you. Um, I guess I would uh, kind of uh, go to Smriti now that we are kind of running out of time. Um, I just wanted to know uh, in your work, um, you not only advocate for the rights of citizens to occupy space that they currently reside in, but also you try to offer adequate strategies to manage the tension between the mainstream development activities versus those who hope to maintain their heterodox modes of being in the world. So would you share some of the stories of how such tensions were able to be relieved in a, in a kind of a just or equal or uh, that kind of social justice way? Yeah. yeah, sure. So in an ideal world, we would believe that the city is for everyone um, and hence, you know, it should be just to all its citizens. Uh, what happens in the absence of formal structures um, or cities unable to fulfill to provide basics uh, is where informality thrives. So, uh, you know, the urban poor in most cases have always been put to test um, to demand their rights in the city. So, for example, uh, the pavement dwellers uh, in Mumbai, you know, around the 80s and 90s, there were rampant evictions and they were being evicted then and again. Well, pavement is not the place for people to sleep because it's for the city that's um, rightfully accepted. Uh, but then what happens when cities fail to give what is affordable you know, to the marginalized? So um, the first generation of the federation leaders, uh, especially the women, uh, they, they you know, identify themselves as the Mahila Milan. It translates as women together in English. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so, so they negotiated with the city, with the laws, uh, to not only look out for a piece of land in the city that belonged to public, let's say it's public land. Mm -hmm. um, it took them so many years in order to do those negotiations with the city. And they identified a piece of land um, and negotiated for it, also paid for the land um, mm -hmm. and, and, and saw building on that land 
housing for themselves and for similar like people from the pavements end to end. Mm. So I think that changes the way we understand uh, of, you know, how to resolve tensions. There's always a way to negotiate. And that's something that, um, you know, leaders and Slum Dwellers Federation has always believed in to work together uh, with the city. Um, you know, regarding the topic itself, uh, the latter question, I think the critique with academic knowledge is that it's very esoteric to practice. Um, mm. You know, theory has a different purpose and, and it deserves its acknowledgement. It, it comes from rationalized thinking. But the mm. question that often um, people ask, so when we have researchers, we've had researchers coming all, all over the globe to work with us. The, the question that communities ask, you know, when sometimes in conversations, when we discuss theories is that if it cannot be realized in practice, then who are these theories helping? I mean, if it's helping build the knowledge base and what is it of use to, um, to solving problems of people on the ground? Now, research is built with evidence and there is little evidence of what people do themselves. Uh, the question, you know, talking about the practice and what research can bring back is how much of research comes back to people? You know, that's a very fundamental question that I tend to ask a lot, uh, you know, when we look out for research proposals, we're looking out for collaborations to work together. So I think it's time for academia to also come back to communities to give back what they found. So right. the information is always taken away and that also comes from data extraction, from so many other yeah. discussions in academia. So what is right. all this data going to? Who is it serving, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's to ask, you know, it, it's time that uh, research and academia asks us to themselves to say, uh, is, it a, is, it, is there a way to go back to communities to tell them what they found with mm -hmm. that big deal of information that was collected? And, and so that that information is also translated in local language so that data, you know, can be used by local communities to do whatever they like. They could use that data to, to plan better, to sometimes negotiate with municipalities. That's where collaboration and research comes from. And that's where we're talking about real partnerships. So mm -hmm. the key there lies not only in writing academic papers, because that's, that's you know, what sets up the standards for academicians is, but it's also mm. to see how, you know, it can come back to communities, what, how, you know, the findings come back to research. Um, mm. I, and I think there's a whole deal of real ethics uh, in research that lies there. So everywhere mm. that we working and we say, okay, fine, this is great. You want to do research. And there are these um, different theories that you want to test, uh, all that is fine. But then whatever you collect in the process together with people should come back to people in some way. So can you change your methods in a way that, you know, it, it helps people in some way mm. uh, that there is a real contribution and, and a simple way to look at it is that what kind of uh, budgets or finances is allocated within research to do that. Mm. So, so there's a whole different thing about it and we can go in it all together off the tangent to speak about it. Uh, but very briefly speaking, I, I think that that's, that's how research can really, really help uh, bring something to communities. And there's, right. there's a big opportunity there because there's so much resources that goes in doing so much research. Right. 
coming back to the communities. Um, thank you so much. Um, uh, I'd like to kind of conclude by asking uh, two questions to each speakers. Uh, so the first question is, what are your inspirations or sources of hope for political transformation in the context that you're familiar with? And the second question is, what political opportunities do uh, the epistemological crit critiques and practices that you refer to generate? Um, just a few uh, sentences. Uh, Mark, starting from Mark. Oh, they're <laughs> rather big questions to finish up on. Um, and I was kind of hoping you might ask um, <laughs> uh, Prince Rashmuti to answer them first. Um, look, I think there were... Um, uh, well-intentioned people uh, who want to enhance and protect the things that they love in their lives and their cities all over the place. Uh, and I would hope that that that, that continues on. Um, and and I don't think any city is is, is void of those forces. Um, and I, I would like to think that they win out um, um, moving forward. In terms of epistemology um i guess I'd, I'd go back to kind of some of the things that shmurti was say, just saying in, in that i think there are really important questions that the academy has to be asking itself about the work that it does and the work that it asks itself to do and i and and there is a sense in which there's a there's been a race to the bottom and that we are all asked to produce the same type of work. So all of our institutions want us to produce globally significant scholarship in one form or another, and that tends to the theoretical, tends to the abstract. Yeah. And I think the danger in that is um, that it, it has an increasing distance from practice and from actual uh, um, expertise on the object of analysis. So um, it is possible, I think, to live in a world of theoretical abstractions about the city, which just produces more echoes for the academic echo chamber. Right. And I, the worry that I have is that we've, in a, in a globalized context that we've been living in, that essentially we've all been incentivized to produce that type of knowledge. And mm -hmm. it's it's come at the cost of the academic who is incredibly well-versed in their local context that is able to shepherd the intellectual and the theoretical into that context because of that expertise. And mm -hmm. I, my worry is that that type of academic, that type of intellectual is mm -hmm. less and less possible in mm -hmm. the world that we live in. Uh, and mm -hmm. so, the type of knowledge we uh, valorize and elevate and celebrate in the academy uh, has to become much more diverse um, right. than it is currently. Yeah, awesome. That's a really good point. Prince, would you agree? What, what do you think? Yeah, of course, of course. I completely <laughs> agree. I mean, how can I not? I mean, also really well said, uh, Mark. Uh, but um, yeah, so for me, I think um, Smuti mentioned uh, something about how we're dealing with a really complex thing, uh, the city. Um, and so it often seems to me uh, like cities are always going to produce novel forms of urbanism. 
uh, you know, regardless of how we might want to interpret them through a universal lens, uh, you know, in, in some right. cases. Uh, and um, yeah. so uh, I think this realization is really important and for me, really inspiring to, you know, try to be really keen on what kind of knowledge am I looking for? Um, mm. Actually, what kinds of knowledges that uh, am I looking for? Um, mm. And what is my contribution in all of this? Um, and so in my research of, you know, urban infrastructure and, you know, smart technologies, um, I had, you know, the chance of uh, researching about Nairobi uh, for my PhD. Uh, and Nairobi is one city that is really, you know, uh, highly fragmented and, you know, highly splintered. Mm -hmm. So um, regardless of how, you know, well-designed a project, you know, um, is going to be, as soon as it's deployed in Nairobi, it's always going to coexist with a large, you know, scale urban fragmentation and informality of Nairobi. And, you know, that it in itself speaks to, um, you know, the complexity of the city that we are dealing with. Mm -hmm. um, and so I guess where, where else I draw inspiration from is the urge to uh, speak to different kinds of temporalities. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, the contingencies that you mentioned at first, mm -hmm. um, the context uh, specific conditions of cities. Uh, I think for me, this become really, really in, in important concepts to even work with for my own work. Um, yeah, the, yeah, the emergent yeah. qualities that you highlight, right? It's emergent, yes. so it doesn't exist in theoretical abstraction because plural people are generating new realities every day, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so how do we really theorize that? How do we speak to that? And so actually my provocation to Mark wasn't really about a theory in and of itself. Uh, but I sort of really believe uh, that first what we should be working towards is, you know, um, trying to find ways of better operationalizing theoretical pluralism. Uh, and, uh, you know, just us being really sure that uh, we have the right interpretations for the, you know, uh, you know, uh, different, uh, the multitudes of, uh, you know, urban worlds and realities. Uh, for me, that is a good point to start. And I think that's really where I draw, um, you know, inspiration. But that's really just to add on to uh, what Mark just said. Mm. Yes. Uh, Smriti? Uh, you know, in, in the lives of poor people, especially where we work, um, they, they are so constrained by just being born poor that they have to stand up every day to stand up to their vulnerabilities. Right. And that itself gives a lot of inspiration, um, a lot of hope to say that there is anything, if there's anything that can be done in order to better their lives, in order to, you know, help them lessen the burden that they're facing anyway. So I think yeah. that is where a lot of inspiration and hope comes through to a lot of people, in fact. And I think even, even for academicians, they're trying to help uh, build knowledge that they think would help some way change the way the world works. Mm. So I think that's where a lot of um, inspiration is to come. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of um, Atmalik Simon's uh, the endurance of rhythms, like it's the endurance of people uh, that uh, they kind of don't really have a lot of uh, traditional or you know conventional resources per se, but they do have that kind of energy and endurance to go on their lives, regardless of um, different uh, circumstances that 
endanger their everyday livelihood. Yeah, yeah. Like you know, there are there are a lot of uh, urbanists and researchers. You know, Apadurai and Amartya Sen have spoken about um, you know aspirations and capacities of individuals to aspire. So there's so much um, capacities, you know, in individuals that they can change and they can do something. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, professionals like us can just support to make that happen. But also the social infrastructure, right? I mean, a lot of um, southern realities, we do still have um, the customs and social infrastructure that sustain the, the vulnerable uh, livelihoods. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you, Smuti. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Prince. Thank you, Angie, for this thought-provoking conversation. Thanks to you for listening. For more information, visit our website, urbanpolitical.podigy.io. Please subscribe and follow us on Twitter.